This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. From state funding cuts to school shootings, teachers have a lot of reasons nowadays to be angry. But how can they use that anger constructively? Plus, search terms like black girls are university professors and the hits that come back may not be what you or your students were looking for. A new book argues Google's search algorithms are racist and that should give teachers pause about how they use the ubiquitous search engine in their classes. Those conversations plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? Hi, I teach fifth grade. Jamie Myers, what do you teach? I teach eighth grade applications. And David Persley, what do you teach? High school math and computer science. And we should say, Jamie, you are now done with school. I am, luckily. Yes. Um, All three of them still are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area, whether they are still in or out of session right now as we get towards the end of this semester. (laughs) Uh, We also have a guest joining us who I will introduce shortly. Our first topic, anger. Teachers nowadays have a lot of reasons to feel it, you might say. Relatively low pay, a perceived lack of respect, cuts in state funding, the increasingly onerous demands of standardized testing, the chilling regularity of mass school shootings, the latest of which happened just two days before this taping. A new column in Ed Week, written by one-time Arkansas State Teacher of the Year Justin Minkle, takes the idea of anger and analyzes how and why teachers feel it and what they can do to harness it productively and use it. Justin Minkle, who teaches first and second grade in Springdale, Arkansas, joins us now. Justin, thank you for speaking with No Wrong Answers. Thanks for having me. Uh, Justin, you say that anger is a badly kept secret among teachers. That is that you all feel it, but nobody talks about it openly, at least how you describe it at your campus. That's in part, you say, due to society's view of teachers. Teachers, as you write, are supposed to be, quote, sweet, kind, patient, and docile. Explain that more. Sure. I mean, I just think a lot of times, like, when, I, when I've met with policymakers, like, you know, senators, they love to talk about their fourth grade teacher. And a lot of times it's about, like, how she was, like, this sweet little old lady, <laughs> you know. Teachers want to be endlessly patient. And, and it's in terms of how we're kind of walled off in this little world where, people are only getting a snapshot. And so it feels terrible when they get that snapshot of you being angry, you know, because they're not getting that full picture. I have seen a huge distinction when it's sort of controlled anger for a purpose, like you said, kind of righteous fury. And I've actually seen that have a really positive impact sometimes. And not when you're out of control and yelling at a kid, but when you can really convey to them that you're not angry because they're annoying you or inconveniencing you. You're angry because you care about this student and you want to make sure that they don't throw away their shot. Um, and it really struck me this week, you know, since I was thinking about this topic from having written the piece and I was having these kind of little one-on-one conversations with students at the end of the year. And this little girl, Anae, said something about how, well, you know, you really take care of us. So I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, like, you don't want us to get hit by cars because you love us and you don't want us to get hurt. And the day before, I had yelled at a student because he walked off into the parking lot and just started wandering off and Later, I thought, you know, I overreacted. I think he was confused that we were lining up. But it was really interesting to me that this girl didn't see it as, oh, Mr. Minkle doesn't like us. He saw it as 
a sign of really, really caring and not being apathetic and wanting to make sure that they're okay. So I think we need to maybe kind of shift that role that maybe being sweet and docile and kind of obeying and all and kind of fitting into exactly what administrators ask, whether it makes sense or not, is not the model of a good teacher. One of the ways, one of the pointers you give, I guess, to to think about how teachers might deal with anger they feel on the job is is really examining why you feel angry. It could be for something prosaic like you didn't get a good night's sleep or you're you're hungry, but it could also be something more profound like where there's more systemic, maybe social and cultural problems um, that you and your students are dealing with. So I guess how do the different reasons why you may get angry affect how you deal with it in class? Well, I think there's a tendency to see anger as something bad, whether it's with teachers or students. And I don't really think that's true. I think it's a powerful force and sort of is neutral and it depends how you use it, right? So, I mean, I think a lot of it is when you can channel that anger. I mean, I went to hear a talk um, last week with the founder of Black Lives Matter, and she was basically incredibly angry, right? And that began this really powerful movement that brought, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people together. For me, most of my students are Latino. Some are African-American or from the Marshall Islands. And I think even though there are a lot of policy problems affecting all schools, like over-testing, there's some very specific problems that have to do with racism that I think we're feeling particularly harshly right now with some of the rhetoric coming out of the president or the White House. And so for me, you know, teaching immigrant students, for example, you know, a lot of the kind of new policies about undocumented immigrants um, have hit them incredibly hard. You know, I mean, you look at the police shootings, even before these mass shootings, just how many African-American boys and young men were dying for really doing absolutely nothing wrong or something that would be, you know, a reprimand or maybe a ticket for a white student. Um, I think there are those really profound issues. And, and these have solutions, right? I mean, we may not always have the political will to do them, but I think as much as we as teachers can kind of channel that anger into something constructive, it's not just raising our voices, but also kind of seeking policy changes. That's a way to take that anger that's this really powerful force and channel it into something that can actually be constructive, you know? And, and I don't necessarily bring up all the activism or politics, I believe, with my students, but we do talk about how to, that anger is okay, right? That even for like a six or seven year old, they need to know it's okay to feel anger. It's kind of what you do with it that matters. Right. And to that end, I mean, you write in the piece that you actually bring this up on, on the first day of school. You ask your kids, is it okay to feel angry? Kind of like what you just said. And I wonder when you ask that question on the first day of school, what do they say? And and why go after that topic on day one? Well, they're usually not really sure whether it's okay or they think it's not okay. That being angry is bad. You know, and I just tell them, look, like, you're going to get mad at me this year, you know, because I'll get you in trouble. I won't let you do something you want to do. And I will probably get angry at you, too, sometime this year. And I just think it kind of normalizes it from day one. And, you know, we usually have a really positive first few days and the kids are on their best behavior. But it has happened where the very first day, you know, a student is doing something wrong and, have to reprimand them, and you can see them get angry. And, and so I think when we kind of talk about it on the front end, it's kind of less of a taboo. And then also kind of going to that solutions part for little kids. You know, it might be splashing water on their face or taking some deep breaths or maybe to get up and go walk around for a while. Um, but, but, you know, it's something that's very real. And, and I found my first couple of years I was just losing so much class time <laughs> to dealing with anger between students um, that I had to have some way to address it. Yeah, uh, I guess we have we have teachers here who teach at all different developmental levels, elementary school, middle school, high school. I wonder for you all, how does this idea of directly confronting anger with your students, maybe in a productive way, um, how might that or how has that played out with your kids in your schools? Something that Justin wrote in his article that resonated with me because that's that's something that I do is when he 
validates that feeling angry is okay, but then separates that out from a behavior. It's like, it is okay for you to feel angry. It is not okay for you to hit someone Mm -hmm. after you feel angry. I modify that in so many different ways, but that's like the general line in fifth grade, at least, that I use. So I have like calm down buckets in my room that kids can go to, and there are journals and like little reflection sheets and colored pencils and stress balls that are like placed all over my room. And um, I have kids practice like leaving my room for five minutes for like a calm down time and then coming back. I always try and say, it's okay for you to be feeling this way. You doing this is not. Uh, Justin, something else you, you kind of glance upon it in what you wrote is that, you know, the teaching force is still very predominantly female. Um, you know, 70 to 80 percent of all teachers are still female while they're working for an administration that is mostly male. Um, you kind of glance upon issues of, of gender and race, but how might those factors affect how angry a teacher can get or even how angry they feel they can get at work? I think anger is perceived really differently, and I see this in politics a lot, right? So, like, if a white man gets angry, it's sort of he's impassioned, right? (laughs) And if an African-American man gets angry, he's an angry black man who's out of control and violent, even if it's really the same volume and the same degree of indignation or fury. And then when women get angry, you know, like Hillary Clinton, they're called shrill or, you know, hysterical. Mm -hmm. So I just think we we can take the same emotion and then treat it really differently. And I see this a lot, you know, with my own kids, even at their school, when sometimes African-American boys are reprimanded much more harshly for doing the exact same behavior that um, white students are doing. Um, And so I think that plays out with teachers as well. You know, and I think that kind of plays in with the gender dynamic to just the idea that, you know, a lot of times teachers are expected to just kind of accept um, any kind of edicts that are handed down from above when, of course, they're not always in the best interest of our students. Uh, Our teachers here, I mean, does issues of race and and gender play into um, the anger you feel and and how you feel you can express or or even how seriously you are taken if you express it? I work on a team, actually, that is the opposite of the national norm. I am one of two female teachers on a team of eight. I have struggled, along with my other female colleague, in sometimes discipline is different in our room. The children, like the boys and girls, act differently with us than they do with the the male teachers. And I don't know. I mean, I teach mostly white rural kids. So... I don't know if it's because of... How do they act differently? Uh, they just can push the boundaries a lot further in our room. They, you know, we... when oh, we they have, feel they can. They feel they can, yeah. We have team meetings and we talk about students and the male teachers are like, well, you don't see that at all. That's just not how it is. They're like, I'm not disclaim, like, I'm not saying that you're not doing the right thing. I'm not disqualifying your feelings, but we just don't see that. And so it becomes kind of a frustration, (laughs) you know, an anger that we have that these kiddos feel like they can push the line with us, but then they don't even toe the line with the male teachers. Of course, it seems like we have higher discipline rates with the, the male students, but I feel like their behavior is reflective of they think that they can push it a little bit further with us. And I don't know if it's also because... There's some comfortability with women that they have. You know, I think a lot of our students do have dads, but there are some that don't. And so their only role model at home is their mom. And so they feel very comfortable with the females in their lives. And and then I guess as, as a female teacher working, I guess you said, you know, in a, in a circle of mostly men, which is, is rare in education. But mm-hmm. do you feel that you can 
um, I, I don't know, like visibly show your frustration and anger in a way that's productive? <laughs> yes, I do actually. And I was, I must have a very obvious angry face <laughs> because I have certain students that say, did you have a bad hour last hour? Oh, I love that question. That's always and like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. It was hard. And they were like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, but you weren't even in there. <laughs> and so um, I, I guess that's my way of validating anger as I, I tell the kids if I'm frustrated and I tell them why. And it helps sometimes with their own behaviors. And I think it, it's comforting for them to see that teachers are human too and that we can have that frustration level of, man, that was a tough hour. Now I have to wipe my face clean and start over. So. Yeah, for for me and my students, um, my student body is 95% African-American. And so from the perspective of whenever I'm processing my frustration, what I feel like, you know, African-Americans being portrayed in the media and or police brutality and all these different issues that, like, make me feel some kind of way. I'm, I'm always trying to think through how my students might feel. When I attempt to sometimes facilitate that conversation, it's something that's such a touchy subject that they really don't want to do it at that moment. And they want to lean into it. And so trying to figure out to navigate that. And then sometimes I just want to, like, fire them up and get them angry because, <laughs> like, that sometimes leads to resistance and ineffective forms of, of advocating. But it's tricky because, like, it can also, when internalized, you know, make them think less of themselves. It's frustrating. It's, it's angry, but and, and I'm trying to, like, completely resist apathy because I know that that wouldn't be what's best for my students because they need to have the tools to be able to you know, try to dismantle some of these impressive systems. Yeah. Uh, before we end, I did want to return to the the framing that I started this conversation with, the bigger political picture that teachers are dealing with currently. Um, and we've talked a little bit about that already, and Justin, you address it in your piece as well, um, things like low pay and funding cuts. But um, we are also taping this, uh, again, very soon after another mass shooting. So I wonder, are and, and this is for everyone, are you and your colleagues, is it fair to say, are you angrier than you've been in the past? You know, for me, that's definitely yes, and it's partly a lot of things that have come out of the rhetoric from the president, you know, toward women, toward immigrant students, toward African Americans, and then as far as the school shootings, I kind of gave up hope after Sandy Hook, and I just thought, you know, if the murder of kindergartners doesn't move politicians to act, it's over. And then Parkland kind of gave me new hope because I saw the response of high school students and just what kind of leaders they could be and that they could speak with a different credibility or it was harder to kind of um, erode what they were saying um, because they're students and they're living with this. And it kind of shifts gun rights from this culture war to a matter of school safety, which is really hard to argue against. And so for me, yeah, I do feel like things have kind of come to a head as a combination of some forces that have existed for a long time, like the low pay, but also with just school shootings becoming almost normal. You know, the last thing I would say is when I heard this founder of Black Lives Matter, she said, you know, we should be surprised every time. And she was talking about when an African-American man is killed at the hands of the police. But I thought about that with school shootings, because one of the students they interviewed said, no, I wasn't surprised. Like, I thought this would happen. You know, I thought it was just a matter of time. Uh, teachers here at the table, do, do you, is it right to say that you feel angrier than you have in the past because of, of maybe just larger political concerns? I'm, when I'm thinking about the answer to this question, I'm, like, struggling to say, like, yes is an absolute because I don't actually feel like I show it. Yeah. But that, that, I'm on edge yes. a lot more. I find myself on edge a lot more. It's not quite as much due to paranoia around school safety. I, I, I feel like I'm lucky to be at a school that's relatively safe. But just 
being close with students and having close relationships with them now, I can sense that they're more angsty, and I feed off of that. And so I'm trying to like gauge constantly whether or not this is the right moment to, to, to pivot off of content to talk about things that I can tell are really weighing on their souls. And, and so to that regard, if that's considered angry, so be it. I mean, I, I feel like I am more fired up by this more recent administration, but I've never shown it. I've kind of, I mean, to unpack another layer of this, I was taught at a very young age to not fall into that angry black man trope. And so I've figured out systems to cope with my anger, some which may be healthy, some which may not. But whenever I'm frustrated or getting mad at the current state of affairs, I tend not to like escalate situations. But I certainly feel like the stakes are higher now than they were before four years ago when I started as a teacher as well. And so like yes. that creates a different sense of urgency in me. It's like a pressure cooker. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's kind of how I yeah. feel. So I don't know if anger is the right word, but the the the, the pressure it, it, is like the intensity there. continues mm-hmm. to rise. Yeah, and then yeah, like I absolutely. think that things are getting like more and more layers of like subversive racism are getting revealed in mm-hmm. in areas that I yeah. interact with, and I'm like, well, and I yeah. think I've shifted from feeling kind of naive and surprised, and I'm shifting more along the spectrum of. I'm not surprised anymore. Yeah. I'm just now getting more angry, but in a really slow yeah, kind slow of boil. disturbed mm-hmm. boil. boil. Well, Justin Mickle, um, I do, I guess, want to try to end on a, a, a more hopeful note, but um, <laughs> <laughs> this was not addressed in your piece, but you know, oftentimes when, when you hear people th- talking about it and suggesting ways to deal with anger, they talk about mantras that they might have or things that they repeat to, to themselves. Is there, is there something that you do in class or, or a technique that you use or something you tell yourself that when you feel yourself getting angry, you, you try to maybe nip it in the bud before it, it, it explodes? Well, you know, my dad has this theory that people go into teaching because they think they like kids, but really they like one kid at a time, not 25 or 150. So for me, it's not so much a mantra, but I try to interact with kids one-on-one, right? So if I'm getting frustrated with the class as a whole, like I'll find some kid who's being really good that day or just who makes me laugh or who is adorable and just kind of, you know, look at their face or just talk to them a second, like these little one-on-one interviews I'm doing at the end of the year to have kids reflect on their year. You know, these kids are just so sweet. And sometimes it's like I'll get angry at kind of the group as a whole. Or, you know, then the paradox is when I talk to them individually, I really like every single one of my 25 students, you know. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, when I hear Maddie or David or Jamie talk, to me, like, this anger is this fierceness that's rooted in love. Like, it's very clear that all three of you really care deeply about your students. And so it's not sort of just this off-the-handle anger or anger because the job is hard or you're just annoyed because it's making your life hard, right? Like, in pretty much everything that we've all said, it's rooted in this really kind of deep commitment to really caring about our students and wanting them to have the chance to live the lives they dream. That's where I wanted you to go. Thanks, Justin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Justin Minkle, a teacher in Springdale, Arkansas, first and second grade, one-time Arkansas State Teacher of the Year. Read his piece at Ed Week. It's called The Anger Teachers Don't Feel Comfortable Expressing. Justin, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Kyle. Thank Thanks, you, everybody, and have a great Appreciate summer. You. All right. Take care. Bye. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Okay, on to our next topic. Is Google racist? University of Southern California communications professor Safia Noble 
examines that question in her forthcoming book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Noble says the idea for the book came a few years back when she searched the term black girls on Google and a slew of stereotypical and even pornographic hits came up. She argues in an interview published recently at Edweek that that's because Google is not an objective arbiter of content, but a search engine built on human-made algorithms algorithms that reflect human biases and stereotype classification systems. Noble goes on to say that this should give teachers pause. In that Ed Week interview, she warns, stop telling students to just Google something. Google, she says, is not a replacement for a school or public library, but at its heart is a money-making corporate enterprise. So, to my teachers here, be honest, how often do you tell kids to just Google something? Pretty, um, pretty frequently, I'm gonna be. Like, yeah. So I had questions for you, David, yes. because you are because of your background, and this is actually why I wanted to talk about this topic this week. But so, but I'll I'll go straight to these questions to you then. So, is there is there a layman's way to explain the technical stuff behind? Yeah, what I can try my best when you when you type a search term into Google. Yes, yeah, so like I'll try happens? my best. Most search algorithms use some sort of deep learning. That's kind of the buzzword, right? Google has tackled this on in a few different ways. Like earlier on, it was like to tailor as like a very user-specific experience. So they would use the data from your own user information to tailor the results you got. So I was like an avid Wikipedia user. And so I also contributed and stuff like that. So a lot of time when I would search articles, I would notice that if I was on my account and I was searching that specific thing, the Wikipedia articles for those specific subjects would be pushed up. What they also use is something known as like recursive algorithm so basically the idea is that like what gets pushed up is based off of previous thing things you before. searched before I'm learning about right? that in my yeah. math and class. so recursion is fascinating right and so like if you haven't been intentionally taught to think about the way you might preconceive things right what stops someone who's developing algorithms from thinking through that same process right so like someone's developing an algorithm I'm like I want to make sure this is a very specifically tailored user experience. And as they build this code and they test it and they see everything that they expected to see before, that's just reaffirming the pre-existing biases they had about that, how the way that system should have worked, right? If a developer was thinking from an equitable perspective, they would have built in algorithms to prevent some of the things like what you were talking about, Kyle, in the beginning, where it's like you search about black women and you find pornographic results. There's ways to build algorithms to avoid that. But... The people who built these algorithms early on, again, I don't think we're thinking through things from an equity perspective. They were thinking about things working in the way they expected them to work. Mm-hmm. As if you already had biases going so, in ahead of so time. So all that they created their algorithm for was for like a personalized user experience? What they yes, what they expected to what, see themselves yes, ahead of time. What the people expect to find. Yes, but I think history shows when systems are left up to their own devices, devices systems of... So, Oppression so, persist in yeah. with your background and your knowledge. Yeah. you're not surprised. No, not that, at all. That back to this idea of Google really applied to the classroom and what and how. Again, Safia Noble's assertion that that Google search um, often returns racist results and that should really affect how we use it in the class. Um, I wonder have you have you ever you know thought about what comes back when your kids do search something? So I mean, like Maddie, you said right away, like yeah, I say go Google this. I pre-search it. If I want them to look up different types of rocks and minerals for science, then I will pre-Google it and then give them the exact phrasing to type into the search box, and I will say, you can click this, 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 this. But then using David's examples, that, like, you say, go to the third one down. It might not be the third one down for them. Yeah. I know. 
So I have me, run into that. I'm like, don't click ahead. Well, and this That's is really interesting, in but my, yeah. my approach to it is the complete or I, like, opposite. Link it. I link it on Symbolo. Yeah. That, I do that, yeah. um, too. My, my philosophy is the complete opposite. It's like, I want to give you a problem, and I want you to show me that you know how to effectively search and query for it and find a solution to it. So you, like, throw them into the ether. No, de- deliberately, right? And again, this is especially in the context in of programming. In a deliberate way. Yes. And, Got like, it. I model this. It's like... Oh, I have an issue with my code. How am I going to figure out a problem for this? And I'll say, what do you guys think I should search? And so we'll go through different searches and see what works. And sometimes we do get different results. So you teach it through, like, troubleshooting. Mm -hmm. I throw them into, like, simulated pits. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yes. No, totally. Like, there are websites. There's this one website out there about explorers. Have you guys Mm -hmm. ever seen it? It's like this entire site that is dedicated to figuring out if the content you're reading is real or not. Yes. So I'll be like, okay, today, and I'll simulate a lesson <laughs> on, we're going to learn about some, like, world explorers, yeah. blah, 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 go to this website, and then I'll have them do this whole fact sheet. And some of the, sh- like, facts on it, they're, like, insane. <laughs> it's just a bunch of fake information so that's really funny. And I, then the kids are like, oh, yeah, this person <laughs> defeated the sea hydra in year <laughs> 50,000 A.D. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh-huh, tell me more. And, <laughs> and then I'm like, click on the about section, and the about section is just absurd. Yeah. It's like, this was written by your pet monkey. And I'm they're like, what? What's the point of this? Are you trying to show them what? Well, it's like <laughs> it, it goes into our digital citizenship yeah. lessons. And, I was and I'm like, mm-hmm. so sometimes something looks really convincing, but then the more you click through the website, what things did you notice? And then we'll have like a open dialogue about, yeah, like when I got to the third page and started reading about sea dragons, I kind of was thinking to myself, <laughs> is Miss B serious? <laughs> like that's what my classroom sounds like. So I, I, have, a digital, I have a digital citizenship. It's one of the first units we cover in, in it. And we, we do talk about like conferring multiple sources, especially using the internet. Yeah. Um, and, like, another glaringly obvious example is that there's, like, a website. I think it's, like, martinlutherking.com. It's actually not, like, a website about Martin Luther King at all. It's, like, a white supremacist website. Mm. Oh, gosh. Yeah, geez. right? Yeah. No, but, like, yeah, yeah. You, you, just because URL specifies a certain, certain topic doesn't mean it's about that specific topic. And that's a, that's, and that's a yeah. real website. No, that's a real website. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. no. Um, but, like, that is a glaringly obvious case. But nonetheless, right? I'll give you my Sea Explorers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should use that one. Um, I should. Another do thing that, that Safi Noble again, the, the writer for, of this book, brings up another example. She brings up she she used the the black girls example as the as the thing that kind of started this for her. But she also talks about how you know if you search the term university, university professor, professor. Mm-hmm. I hated that the the images that come up are mostly white men, men. Um, and so I wonder. How does that affect students? I, I wonder if, yeah. if, like, if that's something that I, I wouldn't have even thought of. Um, now that she's presented that example, you know, it, it's not surprising that that occurred. Um, but how does that affect students? If that's something as simple as that. I mean, the, the biggest context I could think of a student doing that would be like making a PowerPoint slideshow presentation and needing like some kind of graphic or image to go along with your slide and if you're presenting about like a future career you want to be in and then you are in search of that I don't know if it's a critique because I I agree with everything she's saying but I'm also kind of like so what do you want me to do because Mm -hmm. what what search engine do you want me to tap into here then because like I hear you and I agree with you and yes like I'm typing in the same things that you're saying and I'm getting the same feedback like that's racist it's inappropriate like there needs to be a solution, and I think that, like, 
I know that I kind of skipped over your question and pushed towards another question that I had in response to it. What do you want me to have them use well, a as a question, search engine yeah. when they need to look up university professors? Because like that, like we all agree that impacts them. Like that's yeah, not healthy. Yeah, I had to scroll down like four bars to see one female, and then I had to continue scrolling to see another that's female. Crazy. What would you do in that situation? I guess. I mean, so this just kind of popped into my. I'm, I have so many ideas now for my classes <laughs> next year. Um, but I mean, I feel like you can actually make this into a lesson, right? And, and I'd like to. to think. There's a way to make it age appropriate, but literally, you Maybe do give them guidance to like, it. yeah, tell them search it and then like talk about what you see, and then unpack that conversation. Mm-hmm. I think, I think. Why is that happening? Why, why is do that you happening? Think this is? Mm-hmm. And How is it? What What is this basing it off yeah. of? Yeah, and I blah, think blah, that blah, 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 blah. is a is a is a good segue into talking about bias. You know, it is implied in her argument that what she's suggesting is is that you. You shouldn't use Google. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I don't know if she. Comes, I don't. Agree, I, I don't know if I agree. I don't with know if that. she yeah. comes out and says that, but it's implied. I mean, like here is here is something that she says that's featured in the Ed Week interview because the book is not out yet. But she has a Q and A with Ed Week, and she says teachers would quote never send their students to a catalog of advertisements yes. as a scholarly mm-hmm. legitimate resource, and yet they regularly send their students to the largest ad platform in the country, Google. End quote. I mean, within that is implied, like, you shouldn't use Google, but you're That's all saying— That's how I took it. Did but, she offer yeah, a solution? But you're, you're all saying, like, that ship has already sailed. Like, yeah. there's no yeah. way we can't not use Google or Chromebooks or right, Gchat yeah. or Google Docs right. or Google Classroom. <laughs> because it's all free, and that's what we got to yeah. use. So I guess what—yeah, so I guess, let's end this conversation, but, like, you're saying, like, I can't ditch Google. That's what you're saying. No. 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 Absolutely not. No. And why would we, I mean, like, what are they going to use when they're not with us? Google. I, I just think it's inappropriate for us to not, in, like, help we have students to, understand yeah, how we to have web to give them the search. Tools. Yeah. We have to give them the tools yeah. to, f- to find what they need to find and not just nix their <laughs> I, We could band together and I'd, go back I'd to I'd Yahoo. like to believe there exists a world <laughs> in which our students can use technologies like Google, but still have a critical and keen eye yes. for anything they're looking at. But yes. that takes a high level of intentionality. Um, I yeah. think, like, you can't assume they'll do it for themselves, right? But, like, I don't know. I, I actually, I don't know. I've always been, like, a weird tech junkie, really big on Google. Like, I was the weirdo in middle school who was, like, using Hangouts before it, like, became a thing. Um, because I always was like, whoa, I feel like they're trying, you know, create equity. Mm-hmm. And it's obvious that, like, they weren't doing a great job of that, but... I think one of their big things is like trying to make information information free and accessible, mm-hmm. but they have to do it in a way that's right, like that's fair and reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think they're ever going to ac- actually do that with fidelity. But if we teach our students how to be mindful of that and to also, you know, find ways to like make suggestions if they're not, then that's something they'll continue to push forward. But like for some of our kids who can't access libraries and don't have access to those things, Google is the best thing they have. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. making sure they know how to use it appropriately. Yeah, that's the key. So we're not dropping Google, can't drop Google. No, no. no too big to fail. We can. Too I mean, big and the, to fail. And, I mean, and as you said, the point is students need to know how to navigate it. Yes. Yeah. And, and where else are they going to learn that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days Appreciate after the it. credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say. Are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard now, subscribe, leave us a review. 
and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Maddie, you have something pulled up on your phone ready to go. What I are, do. What are your kids into? Harachis, the shoes. Explain. You have to explain. I'm old. They're just really, they're just really, really comfortable, like Nike street shoes. And I just got a pair. I did too. <laughs> I, I, they're so comfy. Um, so ex- are these kind of like I, Toms or are okay, they? So no, am I not, dating myself? Or? Yeah, they're not Toms. Here, I'm going to show you a picture of them through the booth. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. They're just shoes. They look like sneakers. The inside of them is like. Um, it, it, it like hugs your foot essentially. So, so like, it's kind of like a Tom's in a weird way. It's like a Tom's sneaker. Yeah, but it's not cotton. It's not cotton. There's it's not cotton, no but it's cotton. like. Are they relatively cheap or are they no. like, like sure affordable? No. I, mine were like <laughs> 70 <laughs> bucks. No, no shoe made by Nike. Okay. Sheep. No. But, <laughs> they, but they hug your feet. No, they like, yeah, they kind of hug your so. feet and then <laughs> they have um, like plastic. No, not plastic. That's definitely the wrong word. They have like rubber, really flexible rubber that comes up and wraps around instead of like a classic. It's just it it looks a little bit different than a regular no, sneaker. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I have like my shoes have a hole in yeah. the toe. And so I went shoe yeah, shopping, like warm on Monday, fabric. and within one day everyone was like, Oh my gosh, like I'm gonna wear my Harachis tomorrow. And so Everybody brought like we're all yeah. we're all shoe twins now. It makes uh, me feel I just, good. Uh, I just I just Googled it, and Harachis are made from the skin of sea dragons. So <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> they were discovered in forty eight thousand. Oh, that's really funny. <laughs> well played. Made uh, by Nike aliens. Yeah. All right, uh, Jamie. What are your kids into? Well, um, you know, you're on summer breaks. So you, you don't yeah. even care what your kids are into. Well, <laughs> so yeah, before summer break, which is definitely what they're into right now. Um, Instead of the Taki revolution, it was the Flaming Cheeto revolution in my building. So, yeah. like, at one point I had the students were, like, collecting um, hot Cheeto bags because they wanted to, like, wallpaper my room. So hot Cheetos just got to your school? Uh, Well, this year, I guess. Wow. Yeah, as an a la carte oh. item. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So... Yeah. It, used to, it used to be Takis. Yeah, yeah. Still is Takis. Yeah, I was going to say, I yeah. Takis are <laughs> it still permanently is. a permanent fixture in, in the I've game. I've never had Takis. The, the, the Flaming bad. Hot Cheetos have finally yeah. made it. Yeah. At, uh, all right. Yeah. Um, they can eat all the Hot Cheetos they want to now. Yeah, it's just kind <laughs> of weird because one of the kids was like, just look at how many calories would be on your wall. Like with the sheer, you know, 300 calories per bag just lining the wall. And I was like, that's really weird Great for you to think Great extension activity. <laughs> How can we figure that out? Oh. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, David, what are your kids into? Um, with graduation around the corner, our seniors are just off the, off the walls right now between the senior prank, which is yet to be disclosed, and senior confessions. Um, oh, and I didn't even know that was like a thing. I've never that? heard of that before, but Speaking apparently it's a thing that I guess a student started a couple of years ago. Or what do like they do? Be, I mean, they just like anonymously confess to unflattering things that occurred. So this was like a less like and what serious they, what, confession. What do they do it at? Like, is there like a videotape? Or they like, they videotape themselves? <laughs> no, I think I think the students like all share them to this one document, okay. and then oh. like print them out, and then like. But they can them. see who wrote what. They know that, right? I think there's a. I mean, so going back to Google, you can like you if can you set it up the right anonymous? way, you can anonymously contribute to an to a to an uh, yeah. Because there's like purple giraffe. Yeah, says. you can require, require them log in. I don't know if they put that level of planning into it, but you know, I feel like a lot of them already know what some of them are. Oh. But but yeah, so yeah, senior confessions and 
apparently some 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 shady stuff's gonna. Yeah. It's like what, I what's a, yeah. what's a I little more innocent in the toilet. One. Um, a more innocent one um, that a student actually put on the confession for me last year that he used his phone to control my projector. And so he would turn off my projector mid-lesson all the time at these most inconvenient moments. And I knew it was him, but I could never catch him in the act. And it was the most infuriating thing. And I found out about this on Senior Confessions. Uh, and I was very... I, was, I, I felt vindicated, but I was also very upset at that moment. <laughs> Um, so. Did you have righteous yelling? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, it's, it's that, all just full circle. This yeah, episode. no, I know it's wild. Um, yeah, things we get angry about. Yeah, <laughs> no, he's he's doing wild now. Uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week, Maddie Burkemper, Jamie Myers, and David Persley. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And a reminder, if you haven't listened to our live event on School Choice here in Kansas City, go back into our podcast stream and listen. It's now up live. It was a lively and impassioned discussion. You can find that just behind this episode in your No Wrong Answers feed. And remember, kids, even if your teachers are on summer break, be nice to them. Be nice to your teachers. <laughs> <laughs>